Chapter Nine of Prophets, Priests, and Kings by Alfred George Gardner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. James Keir Hardy. I am not sure that when the historian of the future discusses our time, he will not find the most significant event on that day in 1892, when James Keir Hardy rode up to Westminster from West Ham, clothed in cloth cap, tweed suit, and flannel shirt and accompanied by a band the world scoffed at the vulgarity or shuddered at the outrage according to its humour but the event was nevertheless historic it marked the emergence of a new force in politics it was a prophet who came a prophet in ill-country clothes wild-eyed speaking in accents as rugged and uncouth as his garb a prophet you say this dour demagogue a prophet and why not the prophet has always been dour and generally a demagogue even cromwell who had been to cambridge and was among other things a brewer was both sir philip warwick entering the house one day and seeing him on his feet has left his picture for all time a gloomy-browed man with harsh discordant voice dressed in ill-country clothes and having a splash of blood on his collar a most unamiable figure to the polite mind of the cavalier but a prophet a rock on which the ship of the cavaliers was to go to pieces and whether you like him or not keir hardy was a rock too in those days when he stood gloomy and alone in the midst of the amalekites it needed such a man for such a role the prophet is never a comfortable person he would not be a prophet if he were thomas is gay ill to live with said carlyle's mother of her famous son and mr keir hardy who shares carlyle's rage with the world as well as carlyle's dialect and gloomy brow is gay ill to live with too he glowers at life from beneath his mournful eyebrows and he confounds us all in one universal malediction he shrinks from contact with society as from the touch of contamination it is the quality of guilt as well as of pitch to defile he will not be defiled by the guilt of the prosperous you will never find a dress shirt under the red tie of keir hardy he will never be petted by prince and peers he is the pit lad of politics he refuses to be anything else for he has none of the spirit of smiles self-help it is true that outwardly his career fulfils all the conditions of a smiles hero he went down the pit shaft a little lad of eight to win his bread he never had a day's schooling his mother taught him to read but he was seventeen before he could write his name he taught himself shorthand practising the characters on the face of the coal seam where he worked he read carlyle and stuart mill and came out of the pit at twenty-three with an idea a purpose a vision he would be an ishmaelite he would create a party of political ishmaelites and with them he would march into the fat pastures of canaan and challenge the ancient tyrants a fierce intractable man his hand against every man and every man's hand against him Today his dream is accomplished whether titular leader or not he is the chief figure and inspirer of that group of which he was the first begetter 
but success has not been crowned with the reward that attended the smiles hero whose hardships were admirable because they led to plenty and the companionship of the great mr keir hardy has had no visible reward i do not think he wants reward his home is still in the little cottage at cumnock where he was once a pit lad and in london you must still seek him in that lodging in the ancient house off fetter lane where when he first sought a room the good landlady scanning the rough figure demanded references and was placated by the names of half a dozen members of parliament he clings to his poverty with the pride of a highland chieftain for he is proud with the secretive pride of his country the vanity of the englishman is flagrant and assertive it displays itself with the frankness of a child and expires at a sneer but the pride of the scotsman hugs itself close it is like the chamomile the more it is trodden on the better it grows it asks for no recognition it is self-contained flattery cannot exalt it in appreciation cannot wound it it never comes to the surface and is most happy when it is most misunderstood when mr keir hardy was entering the house one day a policeman stopped him are you at work here mate he asked yes was the laconic reply on the roof no on the floor and he passed in happy in the pride that would not reveal itself an englishman would have wanted the policeman's number and would have had his day embittered by wounded vanity and i can imagine that the happiest moment mr hardy ever had was when he was arrested in brussels in mistake for rubino the assassin i think he would rejoice to be hanged as the wrong man the knowledge that he was right and his executioners were wrong would fill his last moments with a sombre joy he is too the most typical scotsman in the house in appearance and outlook he is the knight of the rueful countenance his face is cast in a tragic mould and his temperament has the gloom of calvinism and the severity of the shorter catechism when your eye passes from the cheerful irishman behind him to his sad and foreboding figure you recall a passage in one of scott's letters while a scotchman is thinking about the term day or if easy on that subject about hell and the next world while an englishman is making a little hell in the present because his muffin is not well toasted pat's mind is always turned to fun and ridicule there is no fun and ridicule about mr keir hardy and the perfectibility of his muffin leaves him uncheered he has a soul too sorrowful to be moved by muffins his figure brings up the vision of the covenanters and that grey galloway land where about the graves of the martyrs the whops are crying one seems to see him outrivaling habakkuk mucklewrath in the dark frenzy of his declamation and rushing to the attack at bothell brig with damnatory psalms upon his lips the child man of plato's fancy who had come to maturity in some dark cave and suddenly emerged into the light of day was intoxicated by the glory and splendor of the universe he was filled with wonder at the miracle which we have ceased to see when mr keir hardy emerged from the pit he was filled with wonder too but it was wonder at the fantastic disorder of society at a world in which realities are buried deep beneath a cake of custom and convention where we see not the thing but the appearance not the cause but the effect 
and where the point of view is still that of the northern farmer tisn't them as has money that breaks into houses and steals them as has golds to their backs and takes their regular meals nah it's them as never knows where a meal is to be had take my word for it sammy the poor in a loop is bad he has kept the freshness of that first revelation the wonder light is still in his eye contact with the world has not blurred his sight he remains a seer not dazzled by shows but with his eye fixed on realities it was not rudeness that he intended when on a memorable occasion he spoke of bigamy in a certain connection it was that his eye penetrated the polite fiction and came to the plain human fact and when he attacked the late lord salisbury in connection with some slum revelations and said i would not remain a member of a club which admitted his lordship to membership he was not insolent or even humorous though the world laughed at the joke he simply saw the naked fact the circumstance that it was a prime minister who owned slum property did not make the fact less flagrant but more i have been told by one who was present that his animus towards the liberal party dates from a meeting when a local liberal of consequence refused to go on the platform if the irreconcilable miners agent were allowed to be on the platform too and when he was left to nurse his wrath outside but he never was and never could be a liberal he is a rebel ridden by a theory liberalism stands for the adaptation of existing society to new needs he stands for the recreation of society toryism is an ally it stands for the old structure crumbling and decayed it makes his task possible while liberalism by making the structure habitable and watertight defeats his dream one of the three socialist leaders of european reputation he is the most doctrinaire Jaurès has the statesman's outlook and applies his theories to the practical criticism of government. Bebel is a man of affairs. He revels in the fight. As he talks to you, his eye twinkles with merriment and sly enjoyment. He is always happy, always sanguine. A pleasant human man, enjoying the drama of politics with its cut and thrust, its humors and its gravities. Mr. Keir Hardy is solitary and menacing an embodied theory he is not a politician or a statesman he is a fanatic the politician must temporize and compromise he yields as little as he can and takes as much as he can he studies the weather and is governed by the seasons he equivocates and waits upon circumstance the fanatic knows nothing of this opportunism the thunder is always on his brow the lightning always in his eye the fire at his heart always smouldering into flame he is a man obsessed with an idea it gives him no rest and he gives you no rest hence mr keir hardy's failure as a parliamentarian he has none of the plasticity necessary for the man of affairs he is stiff and irreconcilable he is indifferent to detail he has no gratitude for small mercies his eye is on the far-off vision he is the only man who could have created the Labour Party, for concentration and intensity are the creative impulses. But he is almost the only man in the party who is not fitted to lead it. It is plain common-sense men like Mr. Shackleton and Mr. Henderson, and astute politicians like Mr. Ramsay MacDonald, who have made it a political instrument. 
his party is not as himself he is as isolated in it as when he stood alone in the house for no party can exist on anathema and prophecy a cause comes into being at the breath of the prophet and then leaves him in the desert it goes without saying that there is a strain of poetry in him for no poetry no idealism the prophet must not only see the naked fact he must have the visionary gleam it goes without saying too that it is the poetry of burns with its fierce democratic passion and its exaltation of the humble and the sincere that appeals most to him one who heard him lecture on burns told me that it revealed to him a world of unsuspected tenderness and emotion in the heart of this rugged uncompromising man but indeed it must be so it is the fierce antipathies of the theorist that the world sees but deep down in his heart these antipathies are seen to have their roots in a sympathy as fierce the sympathy with the class from which he sprang and which he has never deserted he hates the palace because he remembers the pit End of chapter nine